Pressure from Thomas off the edge. Eli Manning airs it out down the field. It is caught by Tyree. Oh my God. This ball's thrown and Tyree just goes up for it like a basketball player. Harrison trying to knock it down. That's a great catch by David Tyree. Welcome back to Catch the Moment Podcast. I'm your host, David Tyree. Back for another exciting episode where we get you on to your journey. Let's deal with the process. Let's deal with the pain points and how we're going to get you to your next moment of success. I'm here today with the author of Journey of Hope, Frank Leonardis. Family, welcome to the Orange Table, man. How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Blessed to be here. Doing great, man. Doing great, man. So, um, man, you got a powerful story. Can't really wait um, to just really, really dig in. And we're going to, you know, like... um. You, you know, your subtitle is My Pain to Purpose, which is, you know, purpose is that big, it's one of those big P words, right? I think something that every human is really looking for at the end of the day, right? Mm-hmm. So I can't wait to dig into that. We always got to clear, you know, the, the order of business with Catch the Moment Podcast. I ask everybody, where were you the first time you ever saw the helmet catch? What were your thoughts? What was your response? And do you have any memory or recollection or story? Oh, yeah. I got a few memories from that one. So <laughs> I was at my house watching it with my dad, which was awesome. But my the real memory comes from when I was in my elementary school and I was there was a bet in the class on who was going to win the Super Bowl, Giants or the Patriots. Nice. And I remember talking to one of my buddies and he said, it's an easy bet. Go with the Patriots. They're going to win. <laughs> I said, all right. And I remember you got the catch, and I'm like, okay, I'm not going to get my free homework. <laughs> no, so that was what was on the table? Free homework was on the oh, table? yeah. I was an, I was That's a, a big deal, too. Yeah. <laughs> That's a big deal. I was a little now, upset. Now, so if, if you would have won, he would somebody would have had to do your homework, or you wouldn't have to hand in no assignments? I wouldn't have to do an assignment. I mean, listen, I, I feel great about it. I just want you to know I feel great. <laughs> yeah, you caused that. You did that. I feel great about <laughs> snatching that from you, man. You're better on the wrong side. But a lot of people did. Don't worry. Um... So, obviously, we're here. I can't wait to really dig into your story. I don't want to be presumptive because, um, man, like, you know, so how old are you? 25. 25 years What You're snapping out here, my guy. 25 years old, author of the book, on your way. So, in your young, I would say, intentional, purpose-driven life so far, what would you call your defining moment? My defining moment was writing that book and just being able to get out there and tell my story and just have have the courage to send a message of hope out to the world. Amazing. So I, I was going to assume, that, right? Because number one, writing a book is really hard. So before we actually get into the story, how was the process for you? And what did you find to be the most difficult part of writing your story? The most difficult part was living through the trauma again. Ooh. And it took me about four to five years to write it. And it was, just, it was on and off. I would be... sure. I found my main point of focus was that when I would go back to my dad's best friend's hotel down in Jersey and okay. I would just lock myself in the room, his hotel room, because he would always give me the room for free. Nice. And I would just camp out and write and I would type. I would tell my whole story and it was just my way of getting things done. And I would knock out 100, 200 pages a week. Mm. But then I'd come back home to Pennsylvania and then I wouldn't write as often. Yeah. So, I mean, like that's that's what I find. You really have to kind of have be in a position to have a really deep introspective, reflective place. I've kind of co-written a couple of chapters in my first book, but it's, trust me, it's nice. Writers, God bless them. <laughs> like, it really, so number one, amazing accomplishment. So let's get into the story. So we talked about reliving our trauma. This is, there's so many conversations going on. So we talk about big words like trauma, mental health, 
Um, you know, this is this is the real life and the real human experience. Tee up for me, what was, you know, childhood like for you? Because obviously these traumas had to had to come in at a very young age. These experiences had to come in at a little at a young age. So what was life like for a young Frank? Well, I started right from the beginning. So I grew up in Brick, New Jersey, living with my mom and dad. Okay, and sure, boy. I'm Essex County. I'm Essex County, dog. So, you know, we really, we looked at y'all like you were snooty, but go ahead. <laughs> but so I lived with my mom and dad and they didn't really get along too well, but okay, there were times where they did. And we would take trips back and forth to PA, visiting some of my dad's best friends that were out here that we met on vacation. And, but Ultimately, I could say my tra my trauma officially started when I was in school, when I was in a daycare center. So I went to school the one night or the one day, and after school we got back from the, we got to the daycare center. Sure. And there were these two kids that were picking on me for for my nose, my ears, just how I looked, my teeth. They called me Ratatouille. Yeah. And I remember I, I raised my hand to go to the bathroom. I go to the bathroom, and I'm sitting down on the toilet. I hear the footsteps. Hmm. The two bullies open the door, kick open the door, grab my grab me by my hair off the toilet, put me in the toilet for about ten seconds. <sighs> ten seconds go by. I'm squirming my arms. I'm, I'm screaming. I'm yelling. I'm, I'm crying. Down I go again. Wow. Another ten seconds felt like an eternity. Lift my head back up. Down one more time. Shit. This time it was. It felt like thirty seconds to a minute. But after that, they walked away, and I was just sitting there in tears, not knowing what, what do I do? Mm. How, how do I react to this? Who do I go to? And that was my mistake, because I didn't go to anybody. I didn't tell my mom. I didn't tell my dad. Wow. I didn't tell the, the, the teachers that were there at the time. Yeah. I was quiet about it. So I stood up, I looked in the mirror, cleaned myself off, and I went home. My dad had this sense of control over me, and he knew I smelled bad. But sure. He said, oh, no, no showering. No showering for you. It's going to raise the water bill. Okay. So there Ooh. we go. A few extra weeks where I'm wearing the same clothes and I, I smelled quite frankly like shit. All right. So you said daycare. So how, how old are you? I mean, like that, that kind of bullying sounds like at least ele you know, elementary school. You said daycare. Five or six years old. Wow. And so some kids in kindergarten, just yep. bigger than you. I mean, I had... I was afraid of living at my home. I couldn't, there's no defending myself against somebody wow. else. Wow, no, that's, 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 that's profound. You know, so, and now you come home and dad has, has a control dynamic going on yep. that brings probably another level of shame and embarrassment, intimidation. Yep. Yeah, and it led to more bullying that happened in school. Obviously, this moment enough is traumatic enough. Does this create a cycle for you as you're, as you're growing up? And, and like, how has that begin to shape some of these relationships and, how you see yourself and begin to interact. I wouldn't say that those moments really like define me, but the bullying did continue. But after the bullying was when something happened with my mother. And hmm. on one of the trips to Pennsylvania, my mom got sick. She was having headaches, stomach aches. So she went to the hospital. She was there for about, I'd say a month or two. My father and I, we were on our, we were at in uh, Parsippany visiting his, his mother. Okay. And she was also sick. But we then got a phone call from the hospital saying, you guys need to get to the hospital immediately. Sure. And my dad left. We left. And we got to the hospital right on time. Rushed to the second or third floor. And I look, I look at my mom. 
I grab her and she says, I love you, Frankie. And I said, I love you, mommy. And she died right there in my arms. And I'm not sitting there crying or a complete trainer because I don't know what's going on. I'm six years old at the time. And oh. she passed away right in my arms. I look at my dad. He's a train wreck. I look at uh, her mother. She's a train wreck. And I, I just remember walking out of the hospital, like walking down the hall out of the room. And I'm, I'm, I'm holding my dad's hand. Sure. And I said, it's okay, daddy. We're still going to be that team together, right? I, I love you. Everything's going to be okay. We're going to be that team. Six years old. Six years old. So you're talking about back-to-back. So within, within the two-year span, your world introduces Thanks. trauma and then a traumatic loss. I lost my mom far later in life, but there's never a good time, right? Like even more so back-to-back stacking traumas. What was your relationship like moving forward with your father as, as you know, you're still a young kid looking for nurturing, looking for care, guidance, how did that begin to, you know, mature through the years? We had a lot of ups and downs. Okay. So right after she passed away, um, my dad, we were going through her car and we found notes from her uh, with another guy. Because uh, on the death certificate, it says HIV and cancer. So we found out that she was cheating on my father. Whew. So we'll say that there's a lot of good stuff in the book that talks about how my dad reacted and how he went to the gas stations and started threatening the guys yeah. and, and going to their houses. And I was in the truck with him. and Yeah. Some real human nature responses. Like yeah. visceral. I mean, it said there's, there's nothing like the, the, the rage of, a, of a, the jealousy of a, of a man. Man, this is some deep in the weeds, you know, formative years. How, where did you find comfort? Like as you're, as you're maturing as a young kid, where did you find c- comfort and a sense of peace of mind in light of, you know, kids have a lot of resiliency built in, but there's also coping mechanisms too. So how did you begin to? It's a great question. So I found a lot of comfort with going to my dad's best friends and with my aunt. Okay. And my, my dad's best friends, they, they were caring about me and they would let me stay with them yep. when I needed to stay with them. But I also found a comfort in watching WWE. Nice, and, nice. Uh, All right, so who was your favorite wrestler? We got it squared away. or Maybe two's two. Go for it. Okay, so we'll start. Here, here, comes, the, here comes a good story. I don't know about a good yeah, one. Yeah, go but, for uh, it. Go for it. <laughs> my dad and I were channel surfing. There were these two guys on TV. They, they, they were DX. Shawn Michaels okay. and Triple H. They yeah. were my all-time favorites. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I and got you. I don't know what it was. They were just funny. They, would, they just made me laugh, and it was great. Yeah. But you know how they make the X, the right? X. They do the DX thing. I was phasing out right around that time, but it was, it was still and hot. I was phasing in. Yeah, I got you. And I got you. I thought it would be a good idea to start making X's on my dad's car. Ooh. Uh, around okay. The, yeah. <laughs> so you, just start, you start carving up dad's car? The 2004 Mercury Sable. Yep, I would just put some X's on the on the on the outside and on the inside. It's a brand new car, and I didn't do it intentionally to hurt him. No, no, no. And that that was not my goal at all. Sure, but it was something I couldn't tell him because I was afraid of him. Well, that led to just me continuously doing it until they found my mistake. So Ooh. my dad called the police because, well, I mean, he didn't know he was doing it, so he wanted to file a report and get sure. it all fixed up for free. Of course, and. uh the cop walked upstairs and walked into the kitchen and was talking to my dad. He saw an X on one of my kitchen cabinets. And the cop said, are you sure you don't know who it is? And they both glared over at me. Ooh. And at that point, I'm sitting at my desk. My head's starting to go down, and I'm looking like, 
Oh, it, this is this is it. <laughs> I'm gonna die. I, I'm caught. My dad's gonna. Um, <laughs> are you um, thinking your dad's gonna kill you when the police go? Or like, what are you thinking in that moment? Is it like fear of police? Because you got you got a right you got a right to be afraid on a lot of different levels. I was only about eight years old. At okay, time, all right. So, so you're still know. a little teeny bopper. Yeah, I was still eight nine years old, maybe. I still, got you. Still pretty young, but the cop left, and he looked at me and said, "I know you did it." And I'm still sitting there crying. I'm denying it. Yeah. And then he said, I know you did it. Um, he then came storming up. He ripped me by my hair, tossed me on the ground, picked me back up, chucked me into the glass wall unit, glass shatters. I'm on the ground screaming and crying. He spit on me, kicked me over and over. And I'm, I'm laying there just begging him to stop and saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I love you. Please stop. About a few minutes later, I start crawling back to my bedroom. And this is where things continue to get worse. He walked back to the bedroom, and this was the first occasion. He, he went inside my cabinets and got my DVDs, my VHS tapes, some of my games, snapped them in half, broke them, tossed them at me, and hit me a few times. Time number two, right about the same thing. It was a lot of screaming at me, wishing that I was dead, telling me I'm a cheating whore like my mother, telling me I'm... I'm Wow. Wish, yeah. It's, so it's, this is physical. This is verbal. And this is still eight, eight, nine. Yeah. It's that same night. So I remember when he left the second time, I'm there looking at the sky, just looking up at the sun like, I didn't mean to do this. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I don't know why this is happening. And I just, I, I wished it would stop. I really did. But then he came in there for a third time and I want to take you back to 1976 real quick. My sure. dad was hit by a car, um, and he was crippled for the rest of his life, so he was addicted to pain medication. Wow. And that's where... Now, I, when you say crippled, how so? Was he wheelchair? Was he just um, just maimed, like, you know, hindered in walking? Yeah, it was, it was more like hindered in walking. Yeah, yeah I got you. The third, so he was hit by the car, addicted to pain meds, and then the third time he came in the room, I've never seen him move like this. It was like he was like Superman or something. He had the leather belt, came into that room. I, at this point, I was scared and I was getting defensive. Like I, I was hiding in the corner on sure. the one side of my bed. He came in there with the leather belt, just started whipping me a few times. And just the same cycle of screaming at me. And then crawl back in the bed once he leaves the room. And I, I, and I just, I hear this voice and it, I, I know it. And it was God telling me that everything was going to happen for some reason someday. That this, this your life, your story has a purpose wow. and that you can't give up yet. This is, there's a reason why your dad is doing this to you mm. and that you're going to be okay. I, all of that, I, I hope and I pray that everybody else can have that experience at some point in time in their lives because that's sure. what happened to me. Uh, obviously, like I said, I'm, I'm amazed at how much stuff has happened within the first eight, eight years of your life in relation to things that mostly were out of your control, right? Like, so I always identify the difference between, you know, some of us, we endure trials and hardship and there's two kinds things that happen to you right you can't control where you're born what circumstances can't choose your mom or dad and then there's things decisions that we make right and obviously the younger we are we don't understand some of the decisions mistakes bad decisions but they do have consequences right mm -hmm. you endure a lot so there's how long does this perpetuate and now that you at least have this internal hope, right? Like God just, just giving you a reason to believe that there will be a sense of purpose. You know, like what becomes your driving force as you move into your teen years? Before we get into the teen years, it was the 2000, I believe it's the 2009 World Series. Okay. Um, New York Yankees versus the Philadelphia Phillies. 
and I wanted to watch the game with my aunt and uncle. My uncle was a huge baseball fan, and my dad really wasn't. So they met up in the Modell's parking lot down in Seaside, and my aunt and uncle picked me up, and we watched the first game together. It was great. And then the next day, he called and told me to come home. Mm -hmm. He said that he tried manipulating me and saying, oh, we'll we'll have a party together. We'll we'll have some chips. We'll get some sodas. We're going to have a great time together. And it sounded great. I said, no, I wanted to stay with my aunt and uncle. Okay. And then that's when he started saying, oh, I'm going to break all your stuff again. You come home, you aren't going to have nothing. And then I hung up. And then this time I stood up for myself. I told my aunt and uncle about everything that happened inside of the home. Wow. From the little things to him smoking pot to... To him teaching me what aisles to go into and steal different items to, to the, and from, to all the abuse that he, he did. Sure. And with that, I was taken away. They called child services, which was called Dyfus. Sure, Dyfus, yeah, yeah. And, um, I'm Jersey boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was Dyfus back when I was a kid too. <laughs> yeah. Well, in Pennsylvania, it's children and youth, so it's like, I, I don't want to get too mixed up here. I got you. I got you. But, so then I was taken away. I lived with him for, or I lived with my aunt and uncle then for about, Nine to ten months, I'd say. Yeah. And it wasn't until around midway through things started to change for my, with my relationship with my aunt and uncle. Okay. So in the beginning, it was great. I mean, they gave me everything I wanted. I had, except I had a strict set of rules, which is something I didn't have. I don't yeah. know I used to, but during the first few months, I also didn't get to see or talk with my dad. Mm. And I remember it was Christmas uh, when I first got to go home and sure. see him and spend the night with him again. Yep. And he showered me with gifts. Showered me with uh, Eagles Deshaun Jackson jerseys, Jeremy Macklin jerseys, the Eagles jackets. So you're an Eagles fan? Yeah. I'll forgive you. Listen, don't, don't worry about it. You know, you know, like that's everything else about your story is fantastic. Keep going. Appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, and um, he got me a brand new PS3 at the time. Yeah. And um, I spent the day in my room gaming, and it was a great time. Yep. Um, and something that him and I used to do a lot was watch movies together. Nice. So, during one of the movies we were watching, um, I don't remember which one it was, but he looked at me saying, why did you do this? Why did you rat on me? Why did you tell them everything that I did? And I'm just there like, oh my gosh, we're going through it again. Yeah. Um, so after that night, I moved back. I go back to my aunt and uncle's and I have, I'm allowed to have phone calls with him at night now. Okay. And during these phone calls, at night, he would tell me that there are these evil people, there are these devil worshipers, that they don't care about me, they don't love me, yeah. and only he loves me. I believed him. I 100% believed him. Wow. And, I mean, that's the type of power we have, because not only do we have bad times, we had tons of good times going to see concerts like sure. Pink Floyd, Sticks, Genesis, all the, all the old classic rock bands. And, and we should want to have a, a healthy relationship with our fathers, right? That's, yeah. I mean, like, every child, even more so uh, yep. a young man. So That makes sense. After I went back up there... He called me the one night, and I, I looked. I, I, I heard him on the phone. He said, you want to come home, Frankie? I said, yeah, I, I do. Go, when, they, when everyone goes to sleep, go upstairs, get a pair of scissors, and cut up your cousin's Eli Manning jersey. So hmm. when, they, when he wanted me to do something to hurt them so I can go home. Wow. I went downstairs, grabbed a pair of scissors, cut up the jersey. Cut up the jersey. And How roundabout what age is this right here? So I'm tracking. Um... Between 9 and 11, wow. I'd say. Got you. Got you. you got a lot going on for a young kid that haven't even reached puberty. Yeah. A lot, lot of stuff going on. So after that, um, I was sent back home. And yep. 
this time we had Dyfus involved, so we had a counselor coming over once or twice a week. We had a caseworker coming over twice, once or twice a week, which was, I mean, it was a pain. <laughs> he didn't want people in our lives coming in and out every day, checking in on what was going on. Did you now. feel safe with that arrangement, did you, like just internally, or what, did it start getting... Nope, I was immediately afraid again. So did, did Dyfus, did that whole thing make you feel at least a little bit better about being home? Because you wanted to come home, but... You already know what your what your yeah. what the potential is. Yep, he had me manipulated. He had me fooled. <laughs> like I did think coming home, like okay, things are not going to be as bad. He's not sure. going to be the same dad. What is the turning point in relation to? Because you already you had one standoff in relation to telling your story to your aunts and uncles. What is the turning point that either allowed you to you know really process this and come to terms that this is unhealthy, and you know we got a track moving forward. What is that real turning point for you? As I'm exiting New Jersey and moving to Pennsylvania, because in if like the the the, trend, the files they don't they didn't transfer over at the time oh. from New Jersey to PA, so that was our way of escaping. Got it. And we escaped. So there was no counselors, no caseworkers, no history of me yeah. ever getting abused. Oh snap! Okay, that's yeah. very interesting. So we moved to PA once I was and I was going to be in the seventh grade. I mean, things were up and down again. He was still terrible. Sure, sure. <laughs> but it started happening again and getting worse and worse. And then I stood up again. I ended up me telling one of my best friends, Anthony at the time, that I was getting abused. I told their parents and it all because I was starting to run track and field and my dad didn't want me to run track and field anymore. Got it. So, and, and does that cycle begin again? They, they become an advocate for you in, in relation to their family? Wow. Like, how does this affect your performance as as a student you say you talk about track i don't know if you were ever in any other sports how does this affect you like everybody has a norm even if it's an unhealthy mm -hmm. so sometimes you got unhealthy norms that people are living through and they think it's normal mm -hmm. so how is this affecting your you know your high school experience your you know your educational experience and um like i said even with the interjection of the state what you know like what does that relationship become even to this day i loved school I, it was my way of getting out of the house Got and it. being with friends that loved me. That's good. And after a month of living with Anthony, well, we were at the court, at the court case. Um, he went through all the classes and everything to get me back. Yep. And uh, I, was, I was fooled again. I remember right after, the, right after the court case, he called Anthony's mother. First off, he said, I won. And then he said, what? oh, yeah. And I was fooled again. And then he said, I hope you die of breast cancer. Click. I remember my face, my hands are in my face thinking, well, I, I was fooled again. Here we yeah. go again. So, yeah. so it was, it was, it's always about being on top, dominate, winning, coming out with the best outcome for that. It continued. It continued on for, I'd say another, about a year until one night he got, he went too far with me. He was screaming and yelling at me. I'm just playing my PlayStation. I don't know if I would have said if I said anything to him to upset him or what I was doing, but I went out to the kitchen to get something to drink. He comes out here with his cane, with his metal cane, just starts swinging at me. I'm ducking under the table, but this time I'm not phased by it anymore. I, I'm so used to everything that he was doing to me. I go back into the room. I'm back again, but this time I hear the footsteps, and I was scared. Mm. I was scared out of my mind. And I, this time, as he stormed over, I jumped to my feet. And I remember him just holding me there. And he takes a cigarette out of my mouth and starts jabbing at it at my chest. And he's yelling at me, spitting at me, wishing I was dead, wishing I was never born. And, and I thought that I'm, I'm holding him and saying, I'm sorry. Yeah, I love you. I love you. Please stop. I love you. Stop. And then 
He threw me into my games. The games all collapsed on my head, and I'm sitting there saying, I, I can't do this again. I can't go through this anymore. I'm tired of this. I, it, do, I, do I want to be alive anymore? Do I, yeah. do I deserve to live? Is, why, what did I do to deserve this? Sure. Why does this keep happening to me? Sure. And this was over Thanksgiving break of 2013. I then returned to school about three, four days later, and that was it. I told my counselor, uh, my high school guidance counselor, about what was going on in the house, and she said, Frankie, you're not going home. Do you have a place to stay? And I did. Mm. Then December 5th, I remember, was the last time I got to see him. I went, we packed my bags up with the police officer and the counselor, and I was looking at him, and he he was just saying, I love you, Frankie. I'm sorry. You know I didn't mean any of that. We're... We're that team that we always were. And Ooh, man. this isn't going to happen again. Everything's going to be okay. And I, I couldn't answer him. Mm. I looked at him and, and, and I didn't say, I'm sorry. I didn't say anything. I just, we left. And as we were leaving, I heard him screaming at the caseworker saying, you can't take my kid son away from me again. Yeah. This is the stuff that you see in movies. Like, you know, like, I mean, like I personally don't know somebody with that much depth of, of uh, abuse, especially up to 15 years old. These things translate in our our hope, right? At the end of the day, you yeah. talk about a reason to believe. Does this, you, but you had this experience as a kid, like there, this has going to be a purpose. Were you thinking of that at around the same time? And, and, you know, like, and what is the state of your relationship with your dad today? Is there a relationship? No, I couldn't. There was no, there was, there was nothing after that. I was just. Completely done. I was, I was broken. And. I moved in with my, my best friend, Tyler, at the time. Sure. And then December 23rd, it was a terrible day all around. Just one of those days where I had a headache. I wanted to come home from school. I came When I, I got home from school, I took a nap. Yep. And we got a knock on my door, and it was from my, my lawyer. And I opened the door, and he said, there's no easy way in telling you this, Frankie, but your father passed away this morning. Wow. Now, when, yeah. when was this? What year was this? 2013. So this the was, same year that, more or less the same year that you, you stepped away. This was two weeks after. December 5th was the day the last time. December 23rd was the day that he passed away. Yeah. And I felt like my life was over. <laughs> like, it was, I, I walked over to the dining room and I'm just, my hand, I'm crying. Like, the only person I thought loved me just passed away. The only person that ever cared about me passed away. I know that wasn't the reality, but that was it. Now, he was my life, he was my world, and that was everything I ever wanted was him to be happy mm. and us to be a team. Yeah. So sorry. Yeah. That's that's really that's really deep and intense. So I'm wow. So that moment, obviously, you know, you're you're processing that that reality. Cause I mean, like end of the day, you know, I losing a mother made me real made me treasure the uniqueness of these relationships. Right? Like and some relationships are just uniquely placed in the heart. Father, in my personal opinion, even more so. How did you begin to cultivate a true sense of peace moving forward as a young... Because this is still... We're not even mature in our brain. You're 25 years old. They say the male brain doesn't mature until 25, 26 years old. I was 15. You're 15. What has this next decade been like for healing? And what was your true place of healing? I know telling your story had to be a big part of it had to be a part of the healing process. But, how you know, like really coming to terms and like, okay, is it a, did you forgive your dad internally at some point? Did you, you know, did you recognize maybe he was wounded? Like, you're still a young man. How has that process been? As I grew older, I, I started to realize, like, oh, I have something that a lot of people don't have, and that was an amazing support system I had. Oh, that's best, so good to hear. The best of friends that would do anything for me at any given time. 
and mm. they, they were most of them were around even when my dad was torturing me because they he would he wasn't just torturing me he was torturing them too Sheesh. and it was just knowing that i had this the friend group and then living in that fo- the foster home that took me in sure uh it was they nurtured me they gave me food they gave me they fed me properly they gave me love and they cared me and i didn't have to worry about being physically or emotionally abused anymore yeah then as i moved through the system i then moved into a group home um, which was one of the things we had to do. Sure. Was go through group homes so then the state would be able to cover me getting my own apartment. And then I got my own apartment. Yeah. So I transitioned perfectly, and I've had plenty of opportunities, which I've been so blessed to have. And <laughs> it's amazing. So basically, you finish up high school, you have some amazing families that kind of step in. Yeah. Move in, in the state, obviously. But you stay on track. You graduate on time, high school on yeah. time. Yep, I graduated. Everything just boom, boom, boom. Yep, I graduated high You're school. You're a warrior, dude. You're a real-life warrior. So, I mean, like, athletes are given so much credit, right? And I think the heroism of, of uh, you know, military athletes, they're, they're inspirational caricatures. But there's people like yourself, the, the people who find the will to live. What was the guiding light? For you, like, you know, I think you obviously talked about community, and I want to highlight that. Was there anything else that you discovered within the, these 10 years of healing that has really allowed you to kind of, like, ground yourself and, again, turn the pain into purpose? Yeah. Um, well, once again, my community. Yeah. Um, fitness was another big thing that I got into. Excellent. Um, uh, Sean T. in particular, Beachbody, if you know who that Good is. Good old Sean T. Insanity. <laughs> I got down on some Insanity uh, 2010 when I first uh, stepped away. Uh, I never did any kind of workouts like that. Yeah. And uh, when you retire, you, you know, you just want to get away from weights for mm-hmm. a while, like athlete. So I was like, I ain't, I ain't, I ain't about to be throwing around no heavy weights. So I, I started messing around with that Insanity. But I was like, listen, it wasn't the, for the first month is okay. That's that second month. Okay. Yeah. If you ever done this, like, listen, man, what kind of moves is these? I'm not, what kind of the power <laughs> jumps? Like, oh yeah, it's all in there. No, that second month was like, F you, Shanti. <laughs> 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 nah, but that's some fitness, insanity, Shanti, yeah. got you going. And I would be, I, I'd fall asleep every night because he has a podcast that I would listen to every night to make sure my head's on straight. And it, nice. it helped me heal and it helped me like understand that what I was going through wasn't normal and that. I know I wanted to not be like him in that aspect. Because yeah. my dad taught me so many amazing things he, and how to be respectful and kind and what not to do. You know, it's great to hear you actually, you know, because you would have some measure of rights to completely demonize, right? Yeah. But to be able to see both sides. You know, a lot of times, and I think anyone who's experienced, let's call it, we're as, as humans, we're needy. Like, we're really needy. Yeah. In general, most people, it's very difficult to give what they don't have. That's what I've learned. My, my, my dad, I have an amazing dad. He hasn't left me short in too many areas, but there's a few, right? And mm-hmm. But then you start looking at what was their experience like, yeah. right? And that's kind of the empathy that we, we often talk about in our, in our society. So considering this measure of pain, how you've arrived, and, and you know, I wouldn't even say weaponize it, but what do you believe to be your purpose, right? So like your story is going to, continue to impact many forever, right? The powerful thing about a book is it's it's everlasting. Yeah. Right? So you you have this story. Who do you feel like is your audience and what do you, what do you feel like has how this story has really given you purpose? Oh, absolutely anybody is my audience. Um, Excellent. Right now my goal is to continue to go on stage and speak with kids and students in high schools, but sure. anybody is cuz no matter what someone's going through, they can while reading that story, there's something that they can compare to sure. that they have lived through themselves, something similar. Sure. And 
I want my book to be healing. I want it to be, I want kids and people to be able to identify what the cycle of violence is sure. and what physical and emotional abuse is and how could I avoid it? How could I stop it? And also being okay with, like that it happened to you yeah. and then turning it into a purpose, being able to go out and tell your story to others to help other people. It's super dope because um, the powerful thing about transparency is it allows you to be seen, right, in a way where you're, not, you're no longer ashamed. That's one of the greatest tactics of, you know, I, call it, I, I say the devil, spiritual man. It's one of the greatest tactics of the enemy is to cause us to cover ourselves and cover our shame. And I think there's a place where we have to wrestle with what we actually experience because we don't really know mm -hmm. how to deal with it. And, um, you know, when you can kind of press into that, come into the light and not be ashamed, tell your story, then, you, again, you, that, that story begins to connect to others in a way where it liberates them, too. And that's what you're doing, Frank. What is something that you really, you know, like I said, if there's one or two things that you really want the audience to know um, and where we can find more Frank Leonardis in Journey of Hope? What I'd like to tell the audience is that no matter what you've got, you're going through and what you've gone through, that there is a way out and that you can maintain hope through all of it. And no matter if it's abuse, trauma, having somebody pass away, addiction, there is hope out there and your story matters and you have to speak up because yeah. if you don't speak up, you might very well just continue living in that cycle yeah. and it's not going to change unless you speak up. Listen, man, there's, like I said, we're, we're in a, we're in a world of society. Well, thank you for that. Grab hold of those words because at the end of the day, this platform is about true transparency and transformation, that liberty and freedom that Frank has experienced has allowed him to be an overcomer. That's what we all, every single one of us, right? We need a reason to live, right? That's what hope really is. At the yes. end of the day, hope is the bone that faith rests on. And, you know, faith is what really fuels everyone's drive, being able to kind of um, lay hold of things that are that are available for us in the human experience. And uh, for me, it's, you know, my, my passion is God. My passion is Christ. That has given me and restored me. But whatever your passion is, whatever your, your pain is, we have to repurpose that. And Frank, I just want to thank you for being an example. Everybody needs to grab that copy of A Journey of Hope so that you can tap into being an overcomer and, and, and allow that story to push you to your next moment, right? Last question I'll give you, Frank. So like, what are you doing today? Because obviously you're, you're an author, you're a speaker. You've, you've, you've created this, you have this dynamic story, but you're still 25. Yeah. So talk about how you're building, you know, like what are you doing from a career perspective that's continued to, to anchor some of these other pursuits? So right now I am a school therapist, but Excellent. on the side, I am just reaching out to as many people as I possibly can to get booked on, whether it's podcasts. Sure. Uh, I've been on Fox and ABC to be talking about that, which is also a blessing. Just whatever I can do to get that out there and to be able to speak this on stage. Passion. And I wish I could make my book free for everybody. <laughs> no, yeah, it's like, we don't want it free, man. We I gotta, just, we gotta, you gotta, you gotta go on Amazon. So I'm sure it's on Amazon, correct? Yeah, it's on Amazon. Excellent. Yes. I mean, that's the easiest place for most of us digitally native folk, not us. Cause I'm, I'm not a native. <laughs> I'm, old, I'm older. I'm not a native, but uh, make sure y'all check this out. Journey of hope, the path to, from pain to purpose Man, your story is dynamic. You're going to help people move into that next moment of success, fulfillment, and peace. And get, and, and that's what we do here. We're going to get great done. Thank you all for tuning in to Catch the Moment Podcast. Make sure you all check the website, davidtyree85.com. There's amazing, uh, amazing insight and more coming soon. We'll check in with you soon.